Welcome to the second episode of a little podcast about coffee price transparency. I'm Meister from Cafe Imports, and I'm with Chad Trevick of Recipro Cafe. In today's mini episode, we'll talk about something that's been said and shared and argued all over the specialty coffee world lately, which is farmers need to be paid more for coffee. Obviously, that's the broad blanket statement, and obviously it's completely true, right? But when we say farmers need to be paid more or need to earn more money for a green coffee, it doesn't always describe who should do the paying. So we'll have a chance in another episode to really talk about higher prices might affect the consumer. But for this episode, I want us to evaluate the rest of the supply stream here. And in your opinion, Chad, where do you think there's the biggest bottleneck happening with the financial flow for green coffee? Well, I think I talked about it in the last episode where I just kind of mentioned that the coffee supply chain is super disaggregated Mm -hmm. and so many smallholder producers are beholden to some other value stream actor who's Mm -hmm. taking coffee from point A to point B where it can be consolidated with more volume and so on and so forth. I think often coffee can trade hands so many times between that producer and let's say the FOB price. There are so many opportunities, let's say, for inefficiency. Mm -hmm. To me, that's probably the biggest black box. That's probably where the most mystery is, where all of those funds go. And I'm not saying that people unnecessarily pilfer or line their pockets exploitively or whatever they might do. But I also think that there's a ton that's not known and understood about what does it take to get coffee from a farm, then put on a pickup truck, taken to a bigger village where there's a different intermediary that buys it and puts it in his bigger truck and takes it to the bigger town and puts it into a bigger where. I mean, like, there's just lots and lots of opportunity for that coffee to become worth different things along, right. the, along the way. And I think that really and truly one of the only ways we're going to understand where a lot of that inefficiency is, is through transparency and really following these transactions, always ensuring that the greatest amount can gets to the producers who are putting a lot of the work into this stuff. I don't know that I could say I have clear understanding or anyone has clear understanding of the bottleneck. I know that with prices that we're putting out in the guide, for example, there's a lot of opportunity to ask questions about that. Um, Mm -hmm. Exactly what I just talked about. If I'm a farmer and I see an FOB price, I sure want to know and understand what kind of magic somebody does to my coffee to get it from the farm to that FOB price because I didn't get anywhere close to that at my farm. Same could be said of... uh, roaster looking at importer FOB prices paid, knowing that they don't pay those prices, they pay a lot higher. And so what are they paying for? What services, what financing, what warehousing, what transportation? I just think that transparency is going to cause us to seek greater efficiency Mm -hmm. and identify where we're missing the mark a little bit. I don't know. I feel like a lot of people in coffee's skepticism about pricing comes from that idea of not actually understanding how many times coffee changes hands, that each one of those transactions comes with a cost. And the same goes with the producer, right? You can even say a producer might see the FOB price that his coffee earned on the market and go, well, where's the rest of that? Without realizing that there's milling costs and there's shipping Mm -hmm. costs and there's storage and things like that. 
And yeah, I think that's really interesting, the idea that the more transparency we have, the more it pressures us all to look closer at our books and see, do we really need to charge this much? Or should we actually be charging more? Where are we losing money as much as we're passing that money along? So that's kind of interesting. The other thing that's pretty remarkable to me is that the price of green coffee has more or less stayed pretty stagnant. I mean, we talk about market fluctuations and the sea market going up and down. But for the most part, I mean, it's 88 cents today. It was 88 cents a decade ago or two decades ago. It was a dollar two decades ago. If you look at the graph of the sea market trends, it's really basically a flat line, except for some occasional spikes up and down. And so on that one hand, we realize that the cost of green coffee has been pretty stagnant, but the price of roasted coffee and brewed coffee has gone up exponentially. And of course, we account for inflation on the retail and the wholesale end, but we never really account for increases in the cost of production on the green end. But is there some other reason that costs are so much higher toward the end of the supply stream? Uh, I think that we know more about them. I think Mm. if you really start to look at the costs to produce coffee, they Mm -hmm. have labor wage increases, the cost of the chemical inputs that they're using, many of them closely tacked with the petroleum market. So their consumption has gone up Mm -hmm. on a per pound basis. Somehow, because in one particular country, their costs are still below that commodity cost, we kind of hold all other countries accountable to that same scheme, whether it's tenable or feasible in their environment or not. I think why we are able to articulate a lot more on the consuming end where roasted and brewed coffee is it's not unreasonable for a pretty mainstream normal consumer to pay $5 for a cup of coffee. I mean, I can remember when you used to say that and it was heresy. Uh, and all oh, these fancy <laughs> coffee $5 cups. I mean, now it's almost normal, right? The reason that we're reflecting the price to the consumer more accurately on this side is because businesses more formally measure right. their cost of goods sold and you know how the labor line and the raw material lines feed into that. And, oh boy, the rent line went up, so we better increase the... Pr- you know, So the business is working like a good capitalist business should do. It's just that the coffee production occurs in a less formal environment in in a lot of situations where there's neither the empowerment or the information to really even make a case for those increased costs. Hmm. And the interesting thing there, too, that I have thought about quite a bit is that also as buying companies get larger, it's not like just because they're making more money, they suddenly turn around and put that into the cost of goods. I know that you and I have talked also about the fact that when rent increases or labor increases or health insurance increases for a coffee company, the place that they can rely on their prices being relatively stable or stagnant, depending on the term you want to use, is their green coffee. And so that's an interesting conundrum, too. Because if we really start to think about the bottleneck and who is going to pay for the coffee at the end, you know, the question is, Like, how does it transform all of the rest of the ways that we do business when we start to take into consideration an increased cost to green coffee? And this is something that came up for me in a conversation I had with Joey Gleason of Buckman Coffee Factory in Portland. And we were talking about coffee price. And she said to me that small companies are actually better suited and better able to spend more money for green coffee than large companies are because of the cost of their overhead, because of the price expectations. Because if you're wholesaling, your end customer expects that your price is going to be cheaper than their retail price. But when a coffee company is buying coffee at closer to what the retail price would be, 
it's kind of their obligation to spend more money for green coffee. And I think a lot of people have the opposite idea. They think, but I'm small, and so I can't spend a lot of money. And I wonder a lot about how we can sort of start the conversation of, well, how do you look at your business model to make sure that coffee prices are your priority when your priority is the sustainability of the coffee market? And how can we create a supportive base that helps businesses trim the fat, so to speak. I also wonder how you feel about that, the idea of what are we wasting money on, having bought for a really large company and now also working with small producers and seeing that kind of division of capital. Well, first I want to comment on this whole idea that certain business models within specialty coffee can accommodate a higher cost of green than others. And I think that's a really beautiful thing about being small and special and sort of having assumed a certain value Mm -hmm. um, that you were going to have to assign to your green coffee because you're small and you wouldn't be receiving the same efficient pricing that a larger player would. So you you have to have assumed a higher green value, Mm -hmm. if you will. Um, So in in that respect, one of the interesting questions or conversations that for me has come out of this whole pricing crisis is, you know, you think about on 10 million pounds of coffee, what is one cent per pound, two, three, four, five cents per pound? I mean, you multiply that out and you're talking about seemingly untenable amounts of money. Now, I will say as an aside here, the coffee commodities market against which most of those people would price their coffee can do that in a sneeze, either up or down. Right. So, I mean, I think that's important to recognize here. But anyway, at those larger volumes, adjusting for a specific value in their cost of goods is is a harder thing to swallow than for a small roaster who does it over lesser pounds, fewer pounds. The impact is felt less on a percentage basis for, for that company. The question then comes to me, well, how many businesses then are looking at their financials and looking at their projections? And especially if you're a small company and you expect to grow maybe 12 or 15 or 20 percent in a year, not by necessarily opening five stores in like, you know, five nearby cities, but you're just hoping to increase volume. But how many people are sitting down and going, okay, if I grow this amount in the next year and I'm interested in making coffee prices a priority for me and my business model, here's the maximum that I can spend per pound aggregated or per pound in this region or per pound in this kind of buying. Like how many people are actually setting themselves a limit rather than just being like, that coffee's great, I should buy that. And then it doesn't make sense in their inventory or they don't move it. You know, how many ways are we setting ourselves up for inefficiency in business because we don't have a mature idea of that kind of overall look at how coffee prices fit into our business models? Yeah, well, we have sort of, I would say, a distorted reality of what those prices and values can or should become. And Mm -hmm. that is related to what we've watched happen. I mean, we've seen how relatively mild flavored clean coffees can almost all be available regardless of whatever country in a 10 country block at x price right we've made basket buying as it's called in the trade a thing you can do you can assign the same value for a coffee regardless of the conditions that it came from and and whatnot and so we have this weird idea 
that price can only go in one way. And it's the reason that it consistently goes in that one way is that there are market forces in play that keep it there. Oh, the world's going to be short coffee in X years. Guess what? One of the big producing countries is going to plant more coffee and try and address that shortfall. And so be the one that they're delivering to that now increased share of market. You started with this convert, this whole notion of what are relatively small companies even spending in ways that are, uh, let's say, inefficient. Uh, instead of allocating more resources to their green coffee line, for example. And you mentioned origin travel. And I, I have a love-hate relationship with this because on the one hand, I have seen some of the biggest eye-opening moments right. and realizations amongst people who I thought had cold, dead hearts, right? <laughs> uh, so there's this part of me that sees that kind of value in these experiences. And if just one person can have that experience come back articulated to consumers so right. they get it and they actually give a shit or, you know, whatever, I see value there. But you're super dead on to say that you've got people who are roasting in the 50s or hundreds of bags and they're still allocating sufficient resources to track to origin. Sometimes it feels like prematurely before they have some of the other things in the business figured out. But part of my role was to do the dog and pony, I used to say, right. with people from cafes to you know come have a coffee origin experience. And it was just life-changing for so many people. So I, I wouldn't want to discourage that. Right. But I understand exactly the the spirit of your <laughs> well i don't want to discourage it either but i think that there well, let's say see, be, seem skeptical of yes it. yeah i think what i would rather do is to create a language around origin travel first of all i hate the word origin i'm sorry that i used it i'm going to continue to use it because it's colloquial in our industry but i hate it because it exoticizes the experience and i think what we don't do a great job of is teaching especially green buyers and roasters who have green buyers on staff who do this travel how to use it efficiently you're not just there to stand on someone's patio and inspect the coffee that coffee producer doesn't need you to stand over the drying beds and say well yeah that looks good that's not an appropriate use of sourcing travel in my opinion but what we don't do a great job of is really give people the tools to use that experience what efficiently. are the things they should look for consider exactly yeah, questions yeah, to ask yeah. things that fit in with your business ways to ask someone if you can use their story or use their image just encouraging people to ask those questions how can this trip add value to the product itself and to the buying relationship rather than just being for our social media so i'm not skeptical necessarily of sourcing travel, generally speaking. But I do think that we could do a better job yeah. as an industry of looking at why do we need this? Can this transaction be done with a phone call or an email? But I also think that that speaks a lot to the need that we have for transparency. And I'm, you know, I go back and forth on transparency. But I do think that part of the reason that people go on those trips is because they're skeptical about the way that the coffee's being purchased. And they think, and I think that this has come along with a lot of the conversations about direct trade and this idea of cutting out the middleman. A lot of people think if I travel to Guatemala and I meet a coffee farmer, I can somehow guarantee that that farmer is going to make the money that I'm paying for this coffee. Mm. For a lot of the people who do this travel, that's not the way it works. You don't just fly to Guatemala with a sack of money and hand it to somebody. 
there's still intermediaries there. And I think people don't necessarily have the empowerment to spend the time cultivating the relationships with the intermediaries and understanding the transparency there. Instead, they feel like, well, if I can just bypass this whole part of the system, then I'm going to achieve some level of transparency. Exactly. But like, you're still going to need intermediaries, culturally speaking, sociopolitically speaking, financially speaking, the logistics. Yeah. They mean something. Financing. Yes, exactly. Someone to put coffee into a bag and then sew it up. So that's interesting to me. I don't necessarily think that sourcing travel is the problem, but I think the way that we do sourcing travel is the problem. uh, Yeah, totally agreed. I I think that it is more glamorized than it is honest. And the reason I say honest is because it isn't completely honest to only snap beautiful mountainscape pictures or coffee processing experiment pictures or, you know. Yeah. I think it's really important and honest to also snap and share pictures of, in a non-exploitive and respectful way, of course, the kind of housing and living conditions that one can and really should be taking note of right. when you're having these kinds of experiences traveling around the world, learning, understanding, experiencing different realities. In my opinion, we as an industry are not super honest about that disparity. Um, mm-hmm. We don't talk about the less sexy, less pretty, if you will, parts of origin travel. And, and in my personal experience, having done it for 20 years, you either desensitize right. to these very different from your own realities that you're constantly browsed with, or you become overwhelmed by them. And in my personal experience, I became overwhelmed by them and started to have my own personal meltdown about, oh my God, I'm a part of the problem. I'm right. the reason that, you know, Sergio can never fix that from truck. I get it. I can see my role in this whole thing here. And once you see that, you don't stop seeing it. And so then you're really heightened to these kinds of uh, differences and realities. And I think that our industry the set, if you will, that's traveling around and having these coffee adventures and creating Instagram stories and whatnot to share with the world, I think they could be a little more honest um, Mm -hmm. in the conversation that they're putting out there about the conditions that they have to be encountering. No one can hide everything. (laughs) I know that everyone tries to hide a lot on the dog and pony show, But you still see things that should raise an eyebrow and make you wonder, why is it so different on this side of this this coffee thing? Right. Because on my side, I know how much my ticket cost. I know how much my salary is. I know how much my hotel was. And oh, by the way, could this person ever make a trip like that to coffee shops where his coffee might end up? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There, There just needs to be more honesty about what we have here and what we do and then how we use that information. Because I think there's a lot of value in that origin experience and and articulating some of these really complex, different kinds of realities that we see. But we're not getting that value out of these experiences in a lot of in a lot of situations. That's really interesting. The idea of I kind of think of everything as being somebody's Instagram feed, you know, maybe because I work in marketing. But that idea of hiding the things that we don't want to see. And that to me also speaks to what we have as kind of a I don't want to say it's like a an identity crisis in coffee. But we have a segment of the industry that's really vocal in saying, we have to pay more money for green coffee. Green coffee producers are starving. They're below the poverty line. They're migrating. They're abandoning their farms. At the same time, please come to my million-dollar coffee shop and sit in absolute opulence and eat a croissant 
and pay fast food prices essentially for something that out of the corner of my mouth I'm also telling you we need to pay more money for and so we create an environment that is confusing because we're not actually giving anyone any reason to pay more money for the product they're consuming because we're already giving them the product that they want in an environment that's really comfortable. So it, it seems to the consuming market, it seems to them like, I don't understand what the problem no, is. It's interesting to talk about the consumer. I know we're going to talk about it later, but just you, you mentioned Buckman. I did an event uh, with juniors and Buckman in November this year. Mm-hmm. And it was mostly coffee industry people, go figure, Portland. Uh, <laughs> but there was a consumer or two, and one consumer in particular came up to me afterwards, and she said, I had said something kind of sensational, but not untrue. And she said, you know that thing you said, that's what you need to make sure consumers understand. And I think that you'll get more of them to be a part of this conversation, or at least ask questions. And that thing I said was, Unless explicitly said otherwise, it must be assumed that coffee is coming from conditions that exploit both people and the planet. There just is no other way for coffee unless explicitly said and remunerated in a different way. There's no way that coffee's not falling into that category of being exploitive. Right. Uh, It's not our reality. Coffee, unless done differently, is exploitive. Right. That's that's our reality. The, The more we kind of stress about that concept and the more we start to look at ourselves, the spectrum of what is exploitative just gets longer. And it makes us more desensitized and more okay with certain types of exploitation as opposed to others. And I think that that's probably, again, just the stage that we're at in having these conversations. We haven't quite gotten to the part where we're so desperate that we just say, full stop. We're working through this as a process. And I think some people are starting to come to that idea of like, okay, well then what does exploitation mean? And how far will I allow it to go on the spectrum before I simply say, I'm not going to buy that coffee anymore, or I'm not going to do my business in this particular way? Yeah. Or what, yeah, what are the things that they can use to sound their own alarms in their head? Like right. What are the criteria that have to be egregious, you know, before they change their behaviors or what have you? It's yeah. interesting to think about that, not just from a consumer perspective, but from an industry actor perspective. Totally. Like, okay, for how many years now are we going to sit and talk about this thing that's happening and not make any kind of market difference, either in our own behaviors or in the message that we're broadcasting to consumers? Because who's changed that message recently, right? Right. Who, where is it different? I'm, look, I'm looking. I'd like to see somewhere <laughs> for it to be different. And it's pretty much the same and celebrating exotic origin stories. And I, I'd like to see something different. I'd like to see someone have a different conversation about it. Yeah. The question that also gets asked, either outwardly or inwardly, I think, is if all of us are saying we need to pay more money for coffee, then why aren't we just paying more money for coffee? You know what I mean? It's kind of funny. You have the total opposite experience in every other place in your life and business. It's like, you know what? I really have to spend less money on X, Y, and Z. And so you figure out ways to do it. Yet we never find out ways to spend more money. And no one wants to say whose responsibility it is. Except when we say that it's the consumer's responsibility, which we'll get to in a minute. But again, I think it comes down to that idea of like, we're asking coffee producers to analyze every little thing that goes into their cost of production. We're asking them to really qualify and quantify how much it costs them to make this product. And yet we don't have the same scrutiny on our side. 
I don't know if that's exactly the answer. I don't know if that's me coming from a certain perspective in the industry. It could very well be me passing the buck because I work at a certain level or I have a certain range of experience and knowledge about how my job gets done and my area of the stream of supply is operated. But I don't know. What do we do? How do we, how does someone just show up one day and go, I want to pay more money for coffee? I, I mean, at the very most basic level, it's competition that stops people from doing it. Right. Uh, I mean, I think that no large coffee company is surprised to hear about the conditions that run rampant in their own supply streams. Right. They've done the work to understand where their risks are, both from public relations and conditions analogous to modern day slavery. I mean, trust me, they know about their supply chains. None of them would be surprised by information that would say, hey, guess what, everybody, we got to change this. Right. I don't know why there's not leadership, though. I mean, obviously, it's fear of competition. Yeah. um, But I do think that we have companies who could stand for leadership and say, look, we have for the last 25 years invested in research A, B, and C. We even have 10 of our own farms so we could further understand this thing and how much more efficient we could make it and blah, blah, blah. And guess what? At the end of the day, there is no way to have coffee production be a tenable business unless the price is X. Right. You know, I mean, these companies have that information and multiple realities and scenarios. We're just waiting for the first person. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. And paralyzing. Right. I mean, if you think about being a smaller player, there's even less gumption, let's say, to want to go out there, stick your neck out and make a change like that because you're competing in a world where your larger competitors have access to cheaper coffee and more efficient delivery systems and blah, 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 right. so that you're really nickel and dimed. And, and so it's even harder for you to take that risk and, and change your pricing behaviors. <sighs> we could keep going. I mean, you think about it from a consumer perspective. Right. If one big roaster retailer increases their coffee by five ten cents a cup and they'd say they're going to remunerate that back to coffee producing countries mm-hmm. not all consumers are going to get it or care and right. so there there's a fear then that they're going to go to brand x that didn't do that and so then brand y that did do it is going to be at this again competitive disadvantage it, it's yeah. paralyzing yeah i mean i guess Obviously, that makes perfect sense from an economic, capitalistic point of view, for sure. Yeah, I mean, but that's also the thing. We live in a capitalistic society. We live in a colonialist capitalistic society. And how do we, can we even start to break out of that? You know, not to imply that specialty coffee should go all rogue socialist or something. Why not? But yeah, I mean, I guess that's really interesting to think of if we all came together as an industry and talked with each other about these things rather than talking outside, which is often what happens. We, we talk at a concept or we talk at consumers who are honestly pretty powerless in the situation and we don't really talk to each other. But the consumer also has to, I mean, I think we have to have the consumers back a little bit in terms of what they don't or are unwilling to understand because Mm -hmm. we have not even tried to tell them this story. We've just made believe that coffee's all sexy glamour, you know, live edge wood tables and (laughs) uh, concrete countertops. I mean, that kind of sleek connoisseurship, fancy coffee experience. 
is what they know. Why the hell would they think there's anything other than fancy happening anywhere in the coffee? You know, I mean. Totally. And then we blame them. It's like a totally abusive relationship. Um, Well, obviously, we could go on about this forever. And who should pay more for coffee? We'll touch on a dozen more times at least over the course of this. But I think that that's probably enough for right now. So I'll stop us here. And in the next episode, we'll discuss the role that transparency and disclosure has in the whole mess that we've been talking about. And you know that that's a favorite topic of mine, transparency in particular. But in the meantime, if anyone out there is listening and wants to get in touch with us, uh, you can email either one of us or both of us or whatever. Um, Chad's email address is chadtrevick at gmail.com. So it's C-H-A-D-T-R-E-W-I-C-K at gmail.com. And I'm Meister at CafeImports.com, and we will be back with another episode in a little bit. Thank you.